Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. On October 13th and 14th, Fidelity Investments Canada proudly hosted an in-person event for financial advisors, featuring several Fidelity portfolio managers and subject matter experts. On today's Fidelity Connects podcast, we're bringing you one of these sessions, featuring a panel discussion. Moderator Pat Ballin is joined by Global Asset Allocation Team members David Wolf, David Talk, and Alon Collette. The Global Asset Allocation Team run many funds for Canadian investors, totaling $80 billion, and they are part of a bigger group out of the U.S. that run over $800 billion, an impressive number. If you've listened to our podcast before, you've likely heard from one of these three guests, and we're fortunate to have the three of them on today's show joining Pat. We'll hear about their investment process, an overview of the funds managed, thoughts on the current market cycle, and much more in today's 45-minute discussion. The panel also takes questions from the live audience, and please note, as this was originally presented as a discussion at a live event, there were a few slides displayed to the in-person audience. This podcast was recorded on October 13th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Elon, I'm gonna start with you. What is it exactly that you guys do for Fidelity? Yeah, thanks very much, Pat. It's, uh, it's great to be here, first time for me in Scottsdale. Um, you know, so what do we actually do? We manage the Canadian Asset Allocation Funds uh, for Fidelity, uh, for Fidelity Canada. And, you know, I think we all know the benefits of blending assets, of blending assets together to smooth out the ups and downs the market provides, or in this year, the downs and the more downs. Um, And, you know, what we do is we lean in or out of various asset classes. um, And and we also, while we don't necessarily pick stocks or bonds, we do pick managers. And when we pick managers and we thoughtfully combine them, we end up with this uh, suite of funds that we manage for Canadian investors. Okay. Uh, you made an important point in there. You manage fidelity managers, per se. Not, not manage them, but pick and choose. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, so the way we do that in terms of, for example, uh, you know, the managed portfolios, the managed portfolios really are uh, the all-weather fund-to-fund managed solutions um, that really display, I think, in my mind, uh, the breadth and range of our capabilities. Um, and so what I mean by that, there are really two components of that. The first is the underlying security selection. And here we have the full breadth and capability of Fidelity and all of the alpha that the underlying managers, many of whom we heard from today and will hear from tomorrow, Uh, are able to generate, and that's the first part, that security selection part. The second part is the active asset allocation uh, element, which is really the decisions that we're taking through the lens of our four-pillar process to lean in or out of 
asset classes, regions, currencies. Um, did I miss anything? Uh, and, and what we see, we, basically we think by, uh, by harnessing the, the, the talent of the underlying managers and then making decisions in or out of asset classes, those two things allow us to add value. And so the thing to keep in mind here is, you know, we're not going to win every day or, or even perhaps every year, but we do believe that by thoughtfully combining underlying managers and using our four-pillar process to lean in or out of asset classes, we can add a significant amount of um, outperformance over time. I mean, the last thing I'll say there, Pat, is, you know, you've heard my colleagues before talk about, uh, talk about our job in terms of a hockey coach, right? So they've said something like, um, our job is a hockey coach. We need to pick the players and then choose who goes on the hockey field when they go on the hockey field. Hockey I, field. Yeah, yeah, so, He's not a uh, uh, yeah, yeah, so I, I, yeah, I, what I, what, the way I think about it is I kind of like food more than hockey. So I think about baking a pie. We have to choose the ingredients, and then we have to choose the relative size of each slice of that pie. I like that one better than hockey field, that's for sure. <laughs> Uh, so what you're describing is active management. Uh, and David Wolf, maybe you can act, walk me through the process of that active management. Sorry, I'm thinking about pie now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Distracted by the food. I know. Um, Dangerous. So I, I know this is the final session. We understand everybody wants to get outside, so we're going to be sure to keep it to time. Um, so our active process. So um, at these events, we talk a lot about what we think. And we're going to do that today, but I wanted to spend just a few minutes talking about how we think, which I think will give you some important insight into our process. Um, so when we think about taking uh, an active view, uh, a high-conviction view, there are really three questions that we're trying to answer. What do we think? What does the market think? And why do we think we're going to know any better than the market? And you have to be able to answer all three questions to really have a high conviction position. So the first one is relatively straightforward. You think what you think, right? And we have hundreds of analysts who help us form our market views. Uh, the second one is a little trickier. So that's figuring out what the market thinks. For some elements, it's relatively straightforward. Like short-term interest rate futures, there's a deep liquid market. You know what people are expecting from the Fed. Um, for something like economic growth or inflation, it's a little trickier, so you have to infer that from consensus forecasts, uh, from uh, security prices, et cetera. Um, but you can do that, and then you say, okay, you have a view, the market has a view. If there's a gap there, there's an opportunity. But you still have to answer the third question, which is the most important, which is, why do you think you should know any better than the market? And that's a really high bar, mm. because markets are really smart. You know, as Andrew mentioned this morning, they're incredible discounting mechanisms. So no matter how smart you are, you're going up against millions of people managing trillions of dollars, all trying to get it right. And that's going to be really, really hard to do. So to be able to take a position that you have high conviction in, you need to not only think what you think, but you need to be able to make a credible argument as to why all of those folks are going to get it wrong. So the way that we have found is uh, the most effective to do this is we use models. We actually use them in a really different way than most people do. So let me explain that. Um, so everybody has models. They use them for positioning, for trading, for analysis, et cetera. They're kind of the currency of the realm. Um, I've been doing this 26 years, most of them as a modeler. Um, 
on the sell side at the central bank, on the buy side, et cetera. And the primary thing I've learned is everybody's models are kind of the same. And if you think about it, they kind of have to be the same because everybody has the same data history to work with. There's no informational advantage that way. Everybody has the same kind of smart people who went to the same schools doing the same kind of analysis, the same techniques. And so people everywhere I've been, somebody will come and say, ooh, I you know, found this great model. And my thought is always, you found it, so 20 other people could find it, and they probably already did, and trade off it. So you really can't use those models to outperform, which is what our job is. You have to use those models in a different way. And so what we do is we run all the models, and then we pull them apart and try to figure out why and where they're going to be wrong. Because models are always wrong. They're models. By definition, they're wrong, right? They are simple abstractions of a very complicated world. So they have to be wrong. Um, and you've heard, to step back, you've heard the old trope, um, this time is different is a very dangerous thing to say. Um, so I agree with that, it's totally true. But saying this time is exactly the same is equally dangerous. And that's what models do. They just assume that the future is gonna look exactly like the past, but that's never true. Mm. Um, things change, relationships change, new things happen. So what we wanna do with our process is say, okay, what is happening now that's really pretty obvious that the models are not gonna catch and then trade off that. So if I could give an example. So a year ago, and, and many of you know this, we were quite worried about inflation. We thought it was gonna be persistent. The markets were listening to the central banks. The central banks were saying it's transitory. So why did we think that? Well, demand was clearly very strong because you created a bunch of money and gave it to people. Supply was constrained, and that's supply chains, labor scarcity, commodity shortages, et cetera. So you have more demand than supply, inflation goes up. That's not that hard. And there was no reason in any of that to expect that to change, right? So we thought inflation was going to be persistent. But then we had to answer the question, why can't markets and central banks see that? And the reason is those models, which again, we've run before and we know in and out, don't have supply curves in them anymore which sounds insane when you say it, because that's obviously half the equation, but supply constraints hadn't mattered to inflation in 40 years. So what the modeler said was, well, this doesn't matter, and it's making our model more complicated, so let's just take it out. So the models were never going to be able to see the inflation that was generated from the supply side. Um, it was a mistake, and one that we're all paying for now with the rapid rise in interest rates. It was a foreseeable mistake. But what it did do is give us an opportunity to get ahead of it and position in terms of asset allocation to protect funds. So what did we do? We bought tips and sold nominals. We bought commodities. We bought gold. We held more Canada than we usually do because of the resource linkage. We reduced our equity risk. We reduced our interest rate risk because um, we expected the central banks were eventually going to have to react to that with tightening. As it's happened, they've had to react a lot more aggressively than I think we or anybody else would have expected. Um, and that's been very difficult, as we know, for markets. And you know, we haven't been able to avoid the drawdowns because everything has gone down. But by making these active allocation shifts, we have managed to mitigate some of the damage. Okay. That's actually not the answer I was expecting. <laughs> well, no, because uh, you know, I haven't had modeling, an bars, so. you know, we think the market thinks and why you're better. I, I kind of expected something more along the lines, and we have the assets of fidelity and the managers that we work with on a day-to-day -day basis to inform our decisions. Is that? Oh, that, that's certainly the case. And, right. and that, so that's the key underpinning, and maybe I gave it short shrift, of the what do we think. 
because we have all that information available, we're able to form a, what we think is a top-notch view with the best information out there in terms of what's going to happen in the world. The, the point I was trying to make is you have to lay that against what the market thinks and why it thinks it. Because if our view is the same as everybody else's view, you don't have a trade there. What we want to have is the best information, the best view, and then understand where the mismatch is between what we think and what the market thinks, because that's where the opportunity is going to be. Hmm, cool. Any questions, make sure you get them in through the app. In the meantime, let's talk about positioning. And David Tulk, I want you to walk me through the next slide that looks at your, well, you tell me, it's the current positioning or end of September? Uh, end what's of the August. date on that? Can you see it? It's there the we end go. of August. Right. August 31st versus December 2021. Talk to me. Absolutely. Well, let me uh, also extend my welcome to everybody. It's great to be back here in person. And I'll try to translate the theory that David Wolf went through into the practice and talk about the global balance pie or managed portfolio. Uh, the chart you see in front of you should be hopefully familiar uh, to many in the room. It can really serve as the underpinning uh, to all of our views that um, wholesalers can share with you and that you can share with <clears throat> clients as well. Uh, so the slide shows the positioning, so the overweights and the underweights. Uh, you can see in the green on the left, this is the equity portion of the portfolio. Uh, the dark blue to the right is uh, the bond element of the portfolio. And anything above zero is something that we're overweight. Anything below zero is an underweight. And the diamonds are where we were at the, at the start of, of this year. And if I could characterize broadly our positioning today, I would say that it's uh, moderately defensive. So you can see that reflected in a couple of different ways. First, uh, the overall equity position you can see is modestly below zero, but if we take out the commodity producers piece, which itself is not a typical equity, but is bucketed there uh, for the ease of simplicity, uh, that is actually a, a larger underweight that we have. <clears throat> you can see elements of defensiveness also on the bond side of the portfolio in terms of the increase in the short-term allocation, uh, which is another way that we can play uh, defense. And then the third level of, uh, or the third example of high-level defensiveness is you can see the underweight that we have to uh, the Canadian dollar. So you can see that's increased over the course of the year to sit now uh, close to a 10% overweight. And the motivation largely for the uh, defensiveness that we have comes out of the macro lens. So uh, as we've all heard numerous times today, we're dealing with an inflation shock we're dealing with the central bank response to that shock. And as a result, we're preparing ourselves for the slowdown in economic growth that central banks need to engineer so that inflation stays low and stable over the longer term. But that macro narrative, it's pretty scary. I mean, you can definitely get freaked out by watching Bloomberg or BNN. And so it's a fair question, I think, back to us. Well, given how scary the macro is, why aren't you more defensive? Uh, you can see with the full range of the tactical range that we have, we could be sizably more underweight than we are. And to answer that question, it comes back to the four-pillar process that <clears throat> Alon alluded to it in, the, in the introduction, because as daunting as the macro is, the other three pillars, the bottom-up, valuation, and sentiment, I think present a little bit more of a nuanced view. So when we think a little bit about the bottom-up pillar, and this comes down to uh, what you asked David Wolf just a moment ago in terms of all the resources we have access to from a corporate fundamental perspective. So listening to uh, all of the managers you heard today, and we'll hear from tomorrow all the analysts more broadly, you heard a little bit, and I was in the audience for the whole session today, that you got a sense that 
you know, maybe there's a little bit of ground for optimism at some point down the road. So broadly speaking, you can say that corporate fundamentals have yet to really deteriorate as much as what you, know, you might have thought uh, given the wider macro environment. So some weakening is certainly inevitable, but if you think about some of the fundamental imbalances or issues that have made prior cycles much more damaging, I can argue today that that maybe is less the case. Then when we think a little bit about valuation, there's been less of an extreme in valuation across many asset classes as we've seen the weakening across a broad number of asset classes. So if we were at extremes for expensive assets, that would be a signal for us to say, well, you know, maybe you need to be a little bit more defensive because this valuation, while not a timing mechanism, is a measure of vulnerability that exists. So that's something that also would argue for a moderate degree of defensiveness. Then finally, sentiment, and this is a contrarian indicator for us that's made up from surveys of investors or fund flows. I mean, it's absolutely washed out. Uh, There's a great deal of pessimism. Um, You've heard from, uh, again, through financial uh, media or anywhere else. And that, to us, again, is sort of the, the fodder that everybody's washed out. It doesn't take much to get these type of bear market rallies that we saw, for example, today or a little bit in recent weeks, where it can just be sentiment and positioning driven as opposed to anything truly fundamental. So those three other pillars that inform our process suggest that we don't need to be preparing the portfolio for the end of the world, but we do need to respect the macro story, and that's the motivation for the positioning we've taken. And we're going to really be careful monitoring how this evolves um, going forward. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of a context uh, into what we're worried about, how we're positioning the portfolio. There's many more aspects of this that I think we can refer to um, in later questions. But just in the interest of not making this an exclusive soliloquy on my part, let me turn it back to you. (laughs) I am going to stick with you, though, because when I look at that uh, chart, uh, uh, two or three things jump out, and uh, some are easy to answer. Then I'll leave that chart up there for a second, if you don't mind. Because the short-term bonds, for instance, since December have gone up significantly. That would be a defensive position. And yet your equities are also up 4% since December. So that is it a barbell approach that we're seeing? Yeah, no, there's an aspect of that for sure. So what are the, one of the other pieces that are, are taking place under, uh, under the hood here is that we've brought in a number of short futures positions on broad equity indices. And this is a deliberate strategy for us because we do believe in, in security selection. We do believe in the active managers that we have as building blocks. So we want to make sure that they can follow the research and find the best ideas on a security-by-security security basis to bring into the portfolio. So we want to make sure they have all the capital they need. But we want to reduce the overall beta or general market risk of the portfolio. So that is, uh, comes in the form of those short futures overlays. And a technical consequence of some of that positioning is that we do have that increase in cash or short-term securities that help us uh, provide that additional level of protection. So that's a, a nice way to put it in that barbell approach where, again, if you think of asset classes around the world, cash has really been your only friend. Uh, Canada is lower than it was in December, and yet commodity producers are higher. Is Canada not like the go-to place for commodities? So Canada is a complicated country. Um, There are certainly aspects of uh, Canada that are tied into the commodity story, and we uh, had increased or reduced the underweight um, out of respect to some of the global themes that are at play, but, and we'll get into this as a group in a moment, but there are also significant vulnerabilities that exist within Canada's domestic economy when it comes to housing and the consumer. And you've heard us talk about this like a broken record, and this 
this, uh, this risk that has existed for, for decades now finally has a catalyst in the form of higher interest rates that can bring a risk to the outlook into the base case. So that's the motivation for us in taking that underweight, a larger underweight, to the Canadian equity market, and by extension also to the currency as well. Okay, Lon, so then let's go back to the fundamentals of what's been driving what's happened in the market for the last year and a half, really, for all intents and purposes, and that's inflation. Uh, why did inflation get so far out of control, and really doesn't matter? Sure, yeah, so if, uh, if my colleagues will, will permit it, I'll, I'll take a couple minutes to kind of explain what's going on with inflation, why we should care, and, where, and why really it matters. Um, and if I go on too long, you know, just, just cough or something. <coughs> yeah, uh, so. Right. Uh, uh, okay, so we got, we got an inflation print this morning. Um, there was no good news in the number this morning. Um, and, and really what's happening right now, right, so let's say 12 months ago when we were talking about inflation, we said inf- elevated inflation was a function of three things. The first are transitory factors, but really it it turned out the only thing that was transitory was the word transitory, right? So it was clearly not transitory. The second thing were supply chain issues. Now, um, I just got back from a, a, I actually flew here from Chicago from an economics conference where we met with, you know, business leaders from across the U.S. Those supply chain issues are still there, and they're going away at a slower rate than we would have expected, right? So that's still sand in the gears of, of the inflation numbers. But the biggest concern is what's happening with the labor market, right? So the labor markets were hyper, were very tight pre-COVID, and now are and now are exceptionally tight. And the way you solve a tight labor market is you pay the person more to cross the street and join your firm. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened, right? So wage growth in Canada and the U.S. went straight up. And when wage go when ra- when wage growth goes straight up, firms pass that on in the form of higher service prices. So when you look into the details of the inflation report, right? We get like 354 lines of details with every report. Um, and I still look at all those details and run the old models I used to run. It's very, very clear that the tight labor market has led to very elevated rates of service inflation. And the reason that matters is, I promise I'm getting to an answer here. The reason that matters is 75% of the inflation pie is underlying service prices, right? So while it might be interesting that the stuff at Costco is getting more expensive, it really matters more what you're paying the person checking you out at the till, right? It's the wages that really matter. Um, and so inflation, we've had a view for a long time that inflation would, would overshoot on the way up. And in fact, it even surpassed our own expectations, I think. Um, and more importantly, that it would remain elevated and sort of stubbornly high and not just fall back to the 2% that we enjoyed for the past 20 or 25 years. And that's unbelievably clear when you look at the underlying details because service prices remain very, very strong. Right? So we have food, food prices and service prices pushing much higher. The reason we should care is inflation erodes that correlation in a, in a stock bond and multi-asset class portfolio, right? that cornerstone of multi-asset class investing where stocks do well in periods of growth and bonds provide some income in periods of stress. That relationship gets eroded in the presence of inflation. I used to say the best example of that was the 1970s, but unfortunately, another great example of that terrible property is year-to-date. Right? Mm. Um, and the third part, uh, which um, my colleagues uh, discussed, was what are you doing? What are we doing? And we own, infl- we own assets that protect against elevated inflation, right? Tips, uh, oil, gold. Um, you know, th- those are the asset classes that have high sensitivities to inflation, 
Um, and again, for me, the takeaway is this inflation is, is with us for some time, longer than I think what most people expect. Um, and unless you own the asset classes that protect against it, um, you know, it will be painful. You know, in uh, due respect to central bankers, David Wolf, but uh, they didn't get transitory, as Elon pointed out, right. What makes you think that they can get it right this time by trying to stop inflation? Well, <clears throat> it's a great point, and the answer is it's their job, right? And they may have messed up their job, which they did, and they know, so they're trying to fix it. And if you're a central bank with an inflation problem, how do you fix it? You raise rates, you pound the economy till you get enough slack in the economy to get rid of those price pressures. And in that context, so I think a lot of the public narrative that I hear, I think is a bit misplaced in terms of understanding why the Fed and the Bank of Canada, et cetera, are doing what they're doing. So I hear a lot about this notion of a policy error, policy mistake, that you know, the Fed is risking a policy mistake by putting the economy into recession. If you're a central bank with an inflation problem, recession is not a bug, it's a feature. And nobody will publicly say that, of course. <laughs> but, I mean, that's, that's how monetary policy works. So I mean, at the core, monetary policy works when you have an inflation problem. Monetary policy works by throwing enough people out of work that the rest of us stop asking for more money. And it's an awful thing to say, and nobody's going to publicly say it, but that's how the framework works. Mm. So... We're at a high level of activity. We need to get to a low level of activity, and that's why rates are going up, and that's why the economy is going down. You, you know, we paint inflation with a very bad brush. But when you make policy decisions that inflate your debt astronomically, the way North America, well, governments around the world had to do during the pandemic, the only way you can get out of that debt is, in many people's opinion, to inflate. So that's true, but it only works once. It only works when people don't expect it. So you're paying whatever you sold at at 2% if you're a government, and then you have inflation at 8%, and that reduces the real value. And then people start to get it, and they start to realize, hey, you're letting inflation run high, your central bank is raising rates, we're going to demand more compensation, and interest rates go up. So you can get that inflating away the debt, but you can only do it once as a surprise. Then people wig to it, and then you end up in a place where you have higher inflation, but also higher interest rates, higher cost to the government, and that's still a problem. Mm. The, the, the problem on the horizon, though, David Talk, is, as he said, a recession. I'd love your thoughts. Yeah, I think a recession is inevitable. I think that's, again, more or less baked into uh, the consensus. And coming back to our positioning and, and the philosophy we take to these funds, we think that the market underestimates the resolve of central banks to kill inflation. We also think that the market underappreciates how persistent inflation will be. And this morning's print was a, a small example of that persistence displayed in inflation. So when we think about the market vulnerability or what the shock is or the risk to the consensus, it is the fact that inflation will stay elevated. So we want to still hold protection against inflation. It's the fact that central banks will continue to tighten. And as the three of us being former central bankers, it's not that we're malicious people and we want to throw people out of work. It is literally job number one to keep inflation low and stable, lest we encounter the 70s example where expectations of inflation get out of control. So that's the fear. So the consequence of central banks doing their job as a feature, not a bug, is to drive this recession. 
And then that brings us to an interesting uh, element when we try to think of, okay, well, a recession, it's in the base case, but um, where is it going to be more severe? And what is a lens that we can look through to help answer that question? And I think one of the, the key uh, forms of contagion is through the interest rate channel. So we want to think of which economies around the world are more interest rate sensitive relative to others. And that can give us some insight into how we want to allocate across geographies on the equity portion of our portfolio. So I hinted at this earlier, Canada has tremendous vulnerability when we think of the level of debt and the risk that exists in an overvalued housing market. So to see Canada as having a, a more difficult time with uh, higher interest rates is the motivation for us to be more underweight Canada relative to other regions around the world. The U.S., by contrast, still interest rate sensitive, but arguably less so. Part of it's the structure of their mortgage market. Part of it is the fact that U.S. households took their medicine post 0809 to improve the health of their underlying balance sheet so that all things equal, interest rates going up in the U.S. will have less of a negative impact on economic growth. Then we think about the international or the EFI uh, bucket of our portfolio, uh, and there, you know, interest rates are going up just like everywhere else in the world, but there's a lot of lurking vulnerability in the European economy to say nothing of the geopolitical risks that uh, are also out there, which means that there's a vulnerability certainly there to higher interest rates, and that's the motivation for being underweight EFI. The only regional equity uh, allocation we have that's a modest overweight is in emerging markets. And that maybe is a little bit of a controversial statement given some of the other comments we heard from other managers. But when we think of which region is more advanced through the economic cycle, it tends to maybe be more on the emerging market side. So China is an example where they are still struggling with their zero COVID policy, but the only handful of central banks cutting interest rates, China would be one of those. So when we think about that advance, and we know there's only a limit to how far EM can, can disconnect from all the other stresses in the, in the global economy. But if we had to think of a part of our portfolio where we, where we still want to play a little bit of offense versus just the defense we have expressed elsewhere, it would be on the emerging market side. So that's just a helpful way where we think, how does the market think about the global cycle and what would be one of the catalysts for differential equity market performance, which is ultimately the, the transmission of interest rates through different economies? Uh, this is probably for you, Elan. Uh, historically, when inflation is on the rise, gold was a safe haven. Why is this not the case now? Only because you mentioned it earlier, but I'll, I'll leave it to all three of you. Sure, yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question. Um, uh, well, so there's kind of two answers there. Um, not sure, I'm not sure either one is overly satisfying, but you know, we'll, we'll give it a go. Uh, the, the first one is, um, well, let me back up. We have hundreds of years of data on both gold and inflation to show that gold is a fantastic hedge against unexpected inflation or elevated inflation. Right? So this is, this is a, a, very, um, a very important question or an interesting question. Um, you know, one answer is, well, actually it has been a pretty good uh, hedge against inflation because it hasn't sort of come under the same pressure that you know, the, the, the equity of the fixed income side of the portfolio has. Right? So it has helped to mitigate some of the downside. Again, uh, you, you know, given the historical data and, and, the, and the research, you would have expected it to, in absolute terms, increase, and, and it hasn't. The second um, idea, and again, this is an area of um, tremendous, tremendous research uh, you know, in, at head office in, in Boston, is there is some uh, thought that perhaps you know, the gold and sort of the crypto investor are perhaps the same class of investor or type of investor, and, and maybe... Uh, 
maybe the folks from the crypto world sort of took some of the shine, pardon the dad joke, away from gold. <laughs> um, you know, that's, again, I would say the research is not conclusive there. It's still ongoing. Um, and, you know, I would invite my colleagues, if they have any, any thoughts here, to, to chime in. But, uh, uh, you know, we have historically seen it as a very effective hedge against inflation. I mean, it's almost 10% of the inflation-focused fund because of that. Um, and, and, uh, and again, it has, it has not come under the same sort of pressure that other asset classes have um, year-to-date. Either of you two want to? I'll just offer a quick plug for our inflation-focused fund, uh, which was mentioned in the, in the introduction. And that's one of the reasons why we want to have a basket of assets that have that correlation to inflation, so that when correlations of any one building block, maybe gold is the example in the question, may not live up to its billing, we have other parts of the portfolio that step in to make sure that that protection against inflation, which is the raison d'etre of that fund, uh, ultimately is delivered. This is a question I wish I'd thought up, because you guys run billions and billions of dollars, right? How do you balance the need to stay diversified and to generate sufficient alpha? So that is a, a wonderful question. Uh, what I would say, and, and we could take the whole period, because that basically our two jobs is stay diversified and generate alpha. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> there are times when you can do both, and you have a trade, a position, an asset allocation tilt that actually achieves both. So at this point, one of the, the examples that I would give is the U.S. dollar. So we're significantly overweight U.S. dollars. Why are we doing that? One of the elements is diversification in the sense that we know that we have a lot of equity risk in the funds. We may not be overweight, but certainly from an absolute point of view, we have a lot of equity risk. And when equities come under pressure, the U.S. dollar tends to go up. And we've seen that this year, and especially in an environment, as Alon alluded to, where bonds aren't going to be able to do their usual job of protecting against stock drawdowns, that protective element of the U.S. dollar is very valuable. So that helps with diversification. It also helps with alpha and has helped mitigate the damage this year because U.S. dollar has gone up. And my own personal view is that probably continues. And the reason for it, and and DT alluded to this a little bit, um, the U.S. economy had their reset in terms of leverage, household balance sheets, housing markets, et cetera, in 2008. We didn't in Canada, didn't in the U.K., didn't in Australia, didn't in most of Europe. So the U.S. is in much better shape at this point to deal with higher interest rates than any of those other countries, including Canada. What that in turn means is where the Fed is ultimately going to go, the other central banks can't follow. So you get a better interest rate on U.S. dollars versus everything else, and that's going to keep what we think will be persistent upward pressure on the U.S. dollar. So by moving from Canadian dollar assets to U.S. dollar assets of various kinds, we provide that diversification and that risk mitigation, and there's the opportunity for alpha all based on the U.S. dollar. But there are various positions that we have on that, but that's probably the best example of how there are opportunities to do both. Wow. It looked like you wanted to say something? That's great. (laughs) (laughs) I would like an opinion on the Canadian dollar. Oh, wait a second. Is there a systemic risk in the U.K. that we need to worry about after the Bank of England intervened last week? We've got a lot of things to worry about in the U.K., but... Um, So I'm happy to take that one as well. Jeff explained a little bit this morning, Jeff Moore, about what exactly happened in the UK. So I would say there was less reason to worry about that specific thing in, say, Canada and the United States and most of Europe because the pension systems and the regulation are different. So that precise problem 
is not likely to have to arise in these other countries. It's not impossible, but it's not likely. The, the greater concern is that when you have a, a economic and financial environment as we do, where rates have been so long, so low for so long, and so much leverage has been built up on the back of that, and then you have a sharp increase in interest rates, somebody somewhere is going to get in trouble. And you can't necessarily predict exactly where it's going to pop up, like in the UK gilt market and UK pension funds. But that pressure is there, and it's one of the reasons that we're defensive. You know, we have a pretty good idea of where the economy is headed. What we don't know is the kind of strains that these higher interest rates are going to put on various sectors, and we want to make sure that, number one, we can avoid more significant drawdowns if that happens, but number two, and probably most more importantly, that we have the liquidity available, and some of my colleagues earlier today talked about this, that we have liquidity available in short-term securities in U.S. dollars that if something does break and we get a real opportunity to buy at cheap levels, that we have the firepower to do that. How quickly do you move that? Uh, it can be very fast. Um, we, we manage a lot of assets, but as DT alluded to, a lot of the calibration of our asset allocation tilts, we do in futures markets. So what we'll do is we'll give Mark Schmel money. We know he's good. We know he's going to outperform over time, as he's shown, right? or at least we expect so. I guess nobody does, never knows uh, anything 100%. But we give him money. We expect him to outperform. But... We may also be in a situation where we want to be more defensive for the market as a whole. So rather than say to Mark, we're taking the money back, because we still want him to be able to pick stocks and generate alpha, we, as DT said, we can short futures against it. So we reduce the overall exposure to the market that we have and still allow somebody like Mark or, or Dan DuPont or Hugo or others uh, to do their thing. Yeah, you're removing the beta from an alpha trader. Exactly. Interesting. Uh, how much is the long-term erosion of real wages going to affect inflation going forward? Uh, yeah, let me think about this for a second. So let's parse this into two different things. Um, so we've talked about 75% of the un- underlying inflation pie being wage- wages, and uh, that's the result of a tight labor market. Um, and until uh, until you have so much... Uh, monetary policy tightening, that it starts to restrict sort of discretionary spending, um, which then leads to you know fewer waiters or waitresses, um, and and really and leads to a pullback in consumer spending. That should keep that should keep the pressure up on on service price inflation. Um, you know, just to be clear, one of the things we, we didn't really touch on is there are lags here, right? So there's been a tremendous amount of monetary policy tightening so far in both the U.S. and Canada. I mean, it takes time before that tightening then shows up in the carrying cost of household debt, right, in your, in your mortgage statement, for example. For then, you know, then there's a few-month lag before you say, well, I haven't been to the gym in two years. I'm going to cancel my membership. Um, you know, there are lags built into that. And those lags eventually could lead or, will, or should lead to that pullback in, in discretionary consumer spending where you need fewer waiters and fewer waitresses and less people staffed at the gym, which then leads to, as DW mentioned, you know, throwing some people out of work. Right? That then brings down um, wages and service prices and then leads to a more n- normal inflationary environment. I don't think we're there for some time. Um, you know, not for a while, but DW, you want to add something there? Oh, I was just going to add more of a, a meta point. 
about this sense of lag. So one thing we've seen through the pandemic is stuff happening really, really quickly. So you saw COVID numbers spike, you saw pretty dramatic uh, responses by central banks to provide stimulus and governments, and you saw the market whip lower, whip higher. But now we're kind of at the point where the normal cadence of stuff is going to reassert itself. So there's a year and a half to two year lag between changing policy and impacting inflation. And the trends on household balance sheets, that can play out over almost a decade. So I just think as investors, we need to be now thinking about stuff taking longer to, to happen. And, and I think that's a point that Mark Schmel made as well, that uh, you know, the frequency of, of events have kind of biased us into, into maybe going too quickly in our investment decisions. And I think maybe we're at the cusp now where there's a theme that plays out over longer. And that's exactly the kind of horizon that we think of targeting as asset allocators. Yeah, maybe just to tack on, maybe one way to think about it is we've all gotten used to V-shaped bottoms in the economy, in markets. And this, to echo Mark, is more like a U, it looks like. This is a more classic business cycle, like in the 90s, you have an inflation problem, you tighten, you get rid of it. And that gives you a more U-shape, right? So we may not be at the very bottom of the U at this point, and it's probably going to be a grind. But there is also, that means that you're not going to miss it if you, you know, miss the first two weeks of the first month, like in, you know, 2020 or in 2009. There should be time to scale back into risk. I'm running really low on time, but I wanted to get to this because you haven't mentioned at any point really geopolitics. And geopolitics play out in funny ways. The pandemic, for instance, I consider geopolitical. It plays out on the economic front because monetary supply was boosted because the economy slowed, all that kind of jazz. The latest geopolitical uh, event is Russia and Ukraine. Uh, I'd love to know if you guys consider those things and whether there's possibly a peace surge should that war end, for instance? Um, so we, we try to focus more on policy than politics, because that's ultimately what tends to drive economies and markets. Uh, obviously, politics is relevant. You, know, you brought up Russia, Ukraine. Uh, you could equally bring up you know, the midterm elections in the United States sure. um, later this quarter, I guess. Um, it's just in a few weeks, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, there are always things to worry about with respect to geopolitics. Um, the, the point that I would make, actually, and maybe a broader point, so you, you asked uh, a number of my colleagues earlier today sort of what the, the next t- 10 to 20 years mm. look like. And unfortunately, geopolitics are going to be with us, presumably, for all that time. <laughs> we don't know what that looks like. But the, the other thing I would say to pull a few of those threads together is there's going to be somewhat related to geopolitics I think, uh, a, a rising set of challenges in the following way. So Jeff Moore talked about demographics, and demographics were great for 40 years, and now they're bad and getting worse. Globalization was great for 40 years in terms of efficiency, profits, markets, growth, etc. Now, to the geopolitics point, it's starting to go in reverse. How fast, we don't know. That's going to make everything more costly and less efficient. It's one of the reasons we've had inflation break out, because you have these constraints that weren't there five years, 10 years, 20 years ago. And I think that's going to be a theme going forward. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that markets can't go up. 
What it does mean is that our expectations for exactly how the economy operates, how policy operates, et cetera, has to be different for the next 40 years than it has been for the past 40 years. Mm-hmm. Not that it's ever been easy to navigate, but you know, back to sort of circling back to my initial comments, the models that are conditioned on the last 40 years are not going to all be appropriate for the next 40 years. So one of the things that we're spending a lot of time thinking about, again, is how do we need to evolve the way that we look at the world to accommodate a different kind of world. We look forward to it. Gentlemen, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash howtobuy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.